I work for Sparrow Hospital. How can I do my job if y'all idiots are blocking up the ways to get to the hospital? There are people dying every minute. And you guys, Trump supporters, want to block up everything and don't care about nobody else. These are people expressing their views. I, I see where they are and I see the way they're working. They seem to be very responsible people to me. The worst thing we could do is gather without observing all of the CDC recommendations about wearing a mask and staying six feet apart and um, all of the prescriptive measures that are really important. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Muckrake Podcast. I am your co-host, Nick Hauselman, and as always, I'm joined by Jared Yates Sexton. And before we get into our conversation, I want to let you know that we have a fantastic interview with Dan Dresner, who's a professor at Tufts and a contributor to the Washington Post. And his new book is called Toddler in Chief. It's available now on Amazon, so make sure you check it out. We had a great discussion about the historical context of the Trump presidency and how he is constantly being described as a toddler and whether or not that will ever change. But first, let's talk about all these protests going on that open up for, to open up the country. And what's interesting is that we kind of predicted this pretty accurately last week, wouldn't you say, Jared? Unfortunately. And by, and by the way, since this is a, an audible experience, we, we need to make sure that when we say protest that we're doing air quotes every single time that we say protest or movements. Um, this is a completely artificial thing. And I don't know how you're feeling about it, but every time that I'm seeing you get airtime, every time I'm seeing anyone treat this like it is anything besides a propaganda uh, operation, I, I am just enraged by it. It is so... Angry making and demoralizing and frustrating. It is a complete and utter fabrication. And and we gotta talk about that again. We gotta talk about what's happening. Well, oh, here's the thing though, we gotta put a little bit of a of a context to this because while the, the genesis of these things are fabrications without question, when right. you when you throw the chum in the water, the it's like World War Z. The the actual real quote unquote air quotes uh, organic people do come out of the woodwork. So this does become fueled by sort of real people, right? But like, I have no doubt that a lot of these people really were like sitting in their houses, really pissed about everything, and got out there and wanted to show everybody that they're libertarians who no one can tell them what to do. Uh, you know what I mean? So not everyone is being like a paid agent to go out there and and uh, and and protest. Is that fair? Yeah, and let's start. Let's start with everyone sitting in their house pissed off. Okay. Let's go ahead and start there and let's deconstruct how something like this happens. And of course, we're talking about the uh, reopen America movement that we're all being inundated with, which is, again, a complete fabrication. So it starts with everyone in their house pissed off. And everyone has a reason to be in their house pissed off, right? The federal government has completely uh, mishandled is actually way too generous of a word for it. Uh, you know, there, there's a case to be made that people have died uh, unnecessarily and intentionally, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I, I want to take everyone back real fast to 2010 with the Tea Party movement. Uh, that was a movement that started with an actual anger towards the 2008 financial crisis, which, you know, had bankers and, and, and all of these moneyed people who melted down the economy. There was a reason to be pissed off at them. But those people were manipulated by wealthier people than them, billionaires like the Koch brothers, who took that anger and then redirected it. And they redirected it towards Barack Obama using racism and white supremacy. 
What's happening now is that people have a right to be pissed off because the government has not only mishandled this, they've allowed the economy to crumble. They have given anybody who's keeping track of where all the money is going right now, which good luck trying to do that. Uh. It's it's going to the wealthy and the powerful. It's turned into a slush fund um, for Donald Trump's best friends and probably his own businesses. They have a reason to be pissed off. But what happens is, again, another billionaire group, uh, in this case, uh, it's, it's our you know, Secretary of Education, uh, and and her family, including her brother who uses his paramilitary to infiltrate liberal groups and spy on them, uh, they are pumping tons of money into these fake fronts, these uh, uh, political action groups, right? And they're putting a bunch of money on Facebook and through social media and God knows where else. And they're they're chumming the water. And they're 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 basically creating this artificial movement that isn't organic and they're they're taking people's anger redirecting it and they're saying oh it's your governor it's your democratic governor and you know it's the democrats out there who want to ruin your family and probably are part of the quote-unquote new world order and the gun groups and the white supremacist groups and the white separatists are all getting involved in this thing and they're creating like you said it's like people who think that something is happening are joining a movement that is completely artificial from the bottom up and unfortunately um our media and and politicians are treating this like it's a real thing. And it's it's completely not a real thing at all. Right. And at the very least, when you're watching the Fox News, they are basically providing free advertisements for all of the rallies or whatever we're going to call these things across the country uh, and, you know, and just sort of promoting these things for them. Very excited that they can finally ratchet up and, like, you know, get these real sound bites from people, which are frankly fucking insane. When you hear them talking about, you know, Jesus' blood is going to protect them from the virus or that they're just out in the open hugging each other. I mean, some of these things are I, I, I hate to say they're hilarious because it's serious and it's deadly. But you see these people who are screaming and yelling and chanting, and then all of a sudden the guy starts coughing at the end of that. And you have to believe that, like, these are not just going to be coughs that are, you know, a dry throat. And you have to believe that odds are very high that there will be some COVID-19 infections going on directly as a result of this. And then again, odds are that there will be deaths caused from all of this. And that's what's, you know, so scary about this. And, and you're exactly right. Let's get to the really macabre, savage awfulness of this. Um, while they're pumping hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars into creating these fake movements, these billionaires are sitting at home or in their safe rooms or wherever they are right now. And they're sending all of these disposable Americans out to do their their dirty work for them, which is exactly what the Koch brothers did and, and what has continually happened. They're sending them out there, and, and they don't care if they live or die because of a pandemic. They don't care at all. All it, all it is is creating the illusion that something is happening that gives Donald Trump and corporate billionaires an opportunity to say, oh, Americans are dying to get outside, and then they're going to die. Right. Which is a terrible, terrible thing. But then you also look at and you're exactly right with how it's being advertised on Fox News. They're treating this like the Tea Party, which is something that the Tea Party uh, that Fox News realized with the Tea Party. They could use them as a vehicle to say what we talk about is popular and there is a populist movement out there that is behind our policies and our ideas and our criticism of Barack Obama. But eventually the Tea Party, and this is the really frightening thing if you look at recent American history, the Tea Party took over the Republican Party and took over 
Fox News. And it went from being a fabricated movement into becoming one of the standard bearers of American politics. And once you understand that, you start to realize just how fragile all of this stuff is. And then all of a sudden you have people out with Confederate flag, Nazi flags, carrying semi-automatic rifles, talking about the New World Order, talking about, you know, Christian God striking people down, all this bullshit. It just grows and grows and grows, and it carries on a weight of its own. Where it is right now, today, April 20th, as we tape this, who can tell where it's going to be? And we need to talk about the real-world consequences of that stuff, because people die. There, there are murders, there are uprisings, there are violent acts that come from things like this, and people are going to get sick, and they're going to die. Right. Now, the only thing that's interesting about the whole thing is that... Um you know, for years you heard about Soros paying the liberals yep. to go, uh, you know, do the same exact kind of thing. And we would roll our eyes and, you know, listen, I, be, I was out there protesting. I never got a check from Soros. I'm still waiting for it. Can I ask you a quick question? Nick? Yeah. Why is it that it's, it's always Soros that is the one that's manipulating and sending out checks? And I, I, I don't know, almost like a puppet master, Nick. It's what, what am I missing here? What, what is that? You know, are we talking about the whole Jewish thing that's involved? Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Because every conspiracy theory, from the protocols of elders of Zion to the New World Order to the Deep State to QAnon, is about secretive Jewish people, like um, puppet mastering politics behind the scenes, when in fact every conspiracy theory that is based on that, that anti-Semitic garbage, is about what white supremacists are doing. To control right. things, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go, go. No, no, no. I, I so, so that, that's the funny thing about this thing because you know there is a the thing is is I asked you earlier is DeVos hasn't even responded to this connection that the governor of Michigan called her out on that right that was pretty impressive to me that like while this could can be conceived of as a conspiracy theory that Betsy DeVos and her her longtime political um, advisor I suppose is the guy the head of the of the business that's been sponsoring these these protests uh, you know. You would think that she would go out there and just lie and say, oh, we have nothing to do with this. We don't even know. But it's interesting absence of any uh, response from her. I had to imagine she's just probably really gun shy because she's been so bad whenever she's been out in public talking to you know, in the microphone. Well, I, I want to throw something out there real fast. Um, Gretchen Whitmer, the, the governor of Michigan, has handled this with incredible aplomb. I, I mean, just a, an exemplary job of not just handling the resources of the state, but standing up against Trump and now, uh, you know, the billionaires coming after her. It's, it's been really amazing. And we, we tend to try and not progno prognosticate political futures on this show. She's got one. I, I, I think what she's been able to do is, has been really impressive. But no, nobody's going to come out and admit that they're paying hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to manipulate, you know, the, the Vox Populi. This is this is something that people have done for years and years and years, particularly billionaires who, you know, kind of do look at American politics from that puppet master idea that they can control these things and move people like chess pieces. So, no, they're not going to come out and deny it. And they're not even going to pretend like any of this is fake. That means that the onus should actually be on respectable news organizations. And they do mention it, but I don't know if you've seen it or if our listeners have seen it. It's always like paragraph 15, 16, 20, 24. After you hear about these protest movements and what the people are saying, which pretends that they're real, eventually it will mention all of these people throwing their money at these and creating them. 
it needs to be a response that says this is a fake thing. The president is is uh, taking over a fake movement. None of this is real. You need to understand that you're being manipulated. But the media is really afraid of talking about that and calling it what it is. Jerry, did you ever see that the CNN uh, segments where they went to people who had organized Trump rallies in 2016 uh, inspired by Russian bots or Russian trolls on, on Facebook? I don't know if you ever saw that, but they confronted them and they actually said and they refused to believe it. They just would it just would not. It's kind of like in Westworld. That, that looks nothing. That looks like nothing to me. Like they won't even acknowledge that that was what, what happened, even though they had the proof of that. And so it's almost like it wouldn't matter in this. You know, there, there's no fog to be lifted for the people who are out there following this and who are angry, who are not necessarily directly related to these sponsored you know, protests. They're just joining the protest because they're so angry. So they're never going to believe that this is manipulated by anybody else, but just sort of populist, you know, anger. I'm glad you said that. One of the biggest problems in American culture is the idea of rugged individualism. Americans have a real problem understanding that they, like every other person on the face of the earth and every other person who has ever existed, is sensitive to outside persuasion. They don't like to believe it. They buy the things that they like to buy. They don't like to think that corporations use propaganda to sell them things. And that, you know, Freudian theories basically determine what they buy and, and what they wear and what they drive. And all those things affect them. In this case, that is what has given people like Vladimir Putin and Vladislav Surkov, his propaganda minister. And now Donald Trump and, you know, Divos and all these people. It's given them cover to manipulate them. And, and by the way, it's, it's also what's given big tech cover, which it's kind of weird, isn't it, that Facebook just continually is where all this happens. It's almost like Facebook doesn't care if they're used for, you know, malevolent political purposes. But that's neither here nor there. Maybe that's an episode for well, another wait, day. Hey, hey, Facebook is taking down certain posts that they feel uh, are passing misinformation about COVID-19. It's, it's out there. I, oh, I yeah. waited for Trump to complain about it, but... Well, they, they have done that, but man, they are more than willing to take ruples. I mean, yeah. dollars from anyone willing to pay them over. Duh. And and yeah, right, and they have created, and so Americans who are lost in their own fantasies, and by the way, people need to understand, this isn't just a public health crisis, and we're going to talk in a minute. It's also a mental health crisis. It's also an educational crisis. It's also a civic crisis. There's all these things that are coming together, and Americans need to take a long look in the mirror, understand why they do the things they do, and start to understand what propaganda is, because the longer that they deny it and the longer that they're ignorant about it, they are perfect targets for that manipulation, and that's what we're seeing on the streets of America right now. I'm so glad that you brought up uh, propaganda, because... You know, I was looking through some stuff on Twitter and they were talking about, I don't know if you remember, but in 2010, Daryl Issa, in fact, I believe it was Daryl Issa's like, chief of staff or whatever was giving us insight because I think he's completely now a never Trumper, uh, was saying that, you know, they were legitimately looking into the Obama administration to prosecute them for violating propaganda laws for, get this, wanting, wanting to and posting those big signs that announced this is part of the TARP program that we are rebuilding America after the f horrible crash from a weight that was, you know, whatever. It was not propaganda. It's the same things we'd seen in, with, in FDR with the New Deal when they were rebuilding America. You'd see, you know, these, these murals and you'd see these signs that, you know, let us know that this is from the government. It's not propaganda. And yet... I've got a sign down the street from me right now that says the Georgia Department of, of Vehicles yeah. or Transportation paid for black topping. Yeah. 
fine. You know, that's not propaganda. But meanwhile, we have uh, the president of the United States basically, you know, like before, you know, before this iteration of my life, I used to make, you know, like high end event videos for, you know, bar mitzvahs and weddings, right? Like these love stories and these coming of age things. And he's basically like having his own staff on their, on our dime, edit these things together, this propaganda stuff of these random out of context bits uh, of news reports that try and shine in a, in, a, in, a, in a nice light. And in fact, they cut it early. Apparently they didn't put the part he wanted that he thought made him look the best from Cuomo. And he's starts yelling at the staffer in front of everybody and the staffer actually argued back with him it was amazing so if this how is that not what the the thing is how are we not at a point where the republicans aren't being grilled i suppose like what would have changed the question should be you wanted to prosecute for propaganda in 2010 what's changed now that you don't want to do the same thing for trump and what he's doing so the republican party and and this is one of the problems there's so many problems. My God, Nick, there's so many problems. I was reading an article this morning, I believe it was in the New York Magazine, and it was about, again, the, the federal government seizing, you know, life-saving supplies, which should be one of the greatest scandals in the history, or modern history, at least. I mean, they're they're letting people die and seizing these things. Well, wait, no is there any version of that matrix that, that they're actually putting, uh, instead of, uh, you know, Colorado, they, they're actually going to somewhere that needs it more? Is that no. possible? Okay. No, not at all. Like, this is not an administration that's worried about saving lives. This is about money and power and political maneuvering. Oh, oh, man. Wait, we, a, well, but really quickly, we didn't mention the $55 million no-bid contract to a bankrupt company with no employees for N95 masks, which they're charging at seven times the cost anybody else's is charging. And by the way, we're only talking about two scandals right now, right? God knows how many, like, like, if I had to sit down, like, I don't know if I have enough paper in my house right now to make an appropriate list, not of scandals during the Trump administration, because that, that ship has sailed. That's never going to get known how many scandals. We're never going to know how many people died from this thing, and we're never going to know how many scandals there were during this presidency. It's overwhelming. And what's actually happened is this weird thing. And we saw it happen in 2016. And I remind people, and I know this is traumatic for some people, Donald Trump had God knows how many scandals hamper him during the 2016 presidential election, right? Hillary Clinton had one. And the one scandal was the email scandal, right? So the media talked about the email scandal and built it up and built it up. to, And then with Trump, there was like this, 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 and this, and this. And it never stuck because it just overwhelmed. Trump and the Republican Party benefit and gain power from the fact that nobody expects them to be consistent or to be um, uh, competent or have integrity or follow the law. So as a result, there's just nobody expects it because to expect it right now would be to be naive, right? And so this is one of those things where you want to talk about propaganda. Propaganda works particularly well when you muddle the water to the point where nobody knows what is real. And that's where we are right now. And this goes back to the protest. A lot of people understand that it's not real. Well, what are you going to do? What is real? And then all of a sudden you start having a conversation about how many things aren't real. And it becomes really demoralizing and, and it, it can lead to total apathy and a breaking of will. I mean, it's 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 
it's authoritarianism 101 and we have to familiarize ourselves with that and understand how it affects us and what it's done or else we're just going to be victims of it we're just going to continue being victims of it jared the, the wife and i have been wa- binged watched the first two seasons of westworld and i gotta sure. tell you after enough of those episodes i start to you know, look at my forearm and wonder if I, you know, I have a an interface so I could, you know, cut myself and plug into a computer because you, it, everything, all the issues that these computers, these robots have, are really just a metaphor for like, you know, uh, social anxiety and uh, and and other mental illnesses that you might have. The code has just gotten infected, um, and, and I feel like what you just described as far as nobody knowing what the truth is and, and the propaganda has become so thick. It's just the nature of how long it's been out there, right? For how, for how many decades. And we have this sort of four-pronged attack that's been laid out by Rush Limbaugh and all these people, which is an attack to discredit uh, the, the four major tenets, which are academia, government, science, and media. So the big four. And that's and after decades and decades of attacking that and discrediting those things, like here we are. So I'm going to introduce listeners, and I, I want them to look this guy up. Because this is one of the reasons we did this podcast in the first place. We didn't want to do just headlines, right? Because talking points, it's it's the same thing as a symbol, man. They just don't matter, right? And and at some point or another, you talk about politics. Some people, you, you listen and you're like, you're just trading headlines back and forth. It doesn't get any deeper than that. Right. I'm going to introduce everybody real fast to a guy named Jean Baudrillard. Okay? B-A-U-D-R-I-L-L-A-R-D. Jean Baudrillard. And... This is an academic. I know, everybody, don't freak out. We, we mentioned an academic in, in public American discourse. I'm an academic as well. And let me tell you something. One of the things that has happened over the past few decades, uh, particularly since the 1960s, when the academy and college became a place where subversive ideas and critical thinking were pushed. And by the way, before that, if people want to know what actually happened, the colleges were used as testing grounds for the CIA and the military. And then all of a sudden (laughs) in the 1960s, it was like it didn't work anymore. So what did Republicans do? They started attacking colleges and universities and undermining them and basically telling people don't pay attention to experts. Experts know what's going on. You know, experts in science, particularly, and in, you know, uh, immunology. Like, those people know what's happening. They can tell you what's actually happening in the world. Jean Baudrillard is a postmodernist. And everybody rolls their eyes when they hear the idea of postmodernism. And they're like, well, that's a dangerous idea. It's not an idea. It's actually, um, it's an indictment of culture. And what Baudrillard says, and this goes to what you were just saying, Nick. He says, over time, there's so much culture. There's so much society. There's so much popular culture, mass media. There's so many lies that it becomes impossible to tell the difference between what is real and what isn't. And at some point, you just can't, right? It's like being in a stream of water, and you can't stop like a single particle of water. You just let it rush over you. Now, academics can tell you this stuff. They can at least get it in your head like where you are. But guess who doesn't like academics? Republicans who rely on propaganda and disenfranchisement and myths that could be easily seen through with a little bit of history and a little bit of education. And also companies and particularly companies like oil companies which by the way real fast nick can you tell me how much a price of a a barrel of oil is right now it's actually like in the negative numbers if i'm not mistaken 
Uh, I believe it's right around negative $40. So in order, <laughs> if you went to an oil manufacturer, you could say, pay me $40 and I'll take a barrel of oil off your hands, <laughs> by yeah. the way. So these groups, okay, so like, you know how they fought against climate change for years and years and years. It's not like they didn't believe in climate change. They're smart people. They listened to experts. They knew that climate change was real. But they decided that they could make money and disrupt those experts and undermine them. That's what we're looking at now with these people out in the street with Trump and all these people saying, oh, everything's fine. The pandemic's over. They 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 hate experts because the experts keep them from being able to profit off of ignorance. And that is unfortunately the state of this country. Well, you know, the experts in this case, well, he's French. Or oh liberal. god, you're right. You're right. I mentioned a French academic on an oh, American you hit the, podcast. Yeah, that's the jackpot right there. You got, you Wait, know. I just I just heard everybody click off. This is what I just heard. You know, but I'm talking about like this notion of because you know I think it's safe to say that a lot of the academics are liberal. You know, and there's always this notion of the Harvard professor and they're indoctrinating the students with this liberal ideology. But like, I don't even think it's liberal, right? I think that's the wrong term too. We've gotten to a post-liberal setting now where it's really, it's really just: Do you care about the country? Do you care about your fellow man or not? Well, so we used to, and we, we talked about this a lot in the past, everyone likes to talk about the political spectrum like it's a flat line, right? There's liberalism and conservatism. The Republican Party isn't a conservative party anymore. And the quote-unquote liberals or Democrats, it's actually everybody else who's just like, you all are insane. And you are living in a different reality that has nothing to do with an actual reality. And so it's that's one of the reasons why the Democratic Party is such a mess right now, is because the Republican Party is over here and they're like, well, at least we're on the same page about right. bullshit. Well, ex- but- except for the shell-shocked one table in the corner of Republicans who, you know, were the Reagan Republicans who ha- can't quite leave for whatever reason. But and, and you know what I mean? Which, by the way, we're gonna uh, part. We're gonna have an interview later on in this podcast with author Dan Dresner, and we're gonna talk about Ronald Reagan. Those people are lost in the mythology and fake reality of Ronald Reagan. They remember a Reagan who never existed. Ronald Reagan ran incredible deficits. He gave uh, amnesty to immigrants. I mean, like he, he didn't even do the things that they like to think that he did. He raised taxes. He raised taxes. And that dude's over... Those people are over here still getting misty over the idea of the Gipper riding on a horse. And then meanwhile, there's just a party over here that is a death cult. And everyone else is like, can we not, Can we just stay in our houses for a few more weeks? Please, just for safety of children and parents and the economy. And then you have these mad people out in the street being paid by billionaires. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second. Because the mad people, I feel like their their ideology and the root of it is... Um, you, fine, you you stay in your house for as long as you want. I don't give a crap about what you want to do. I am going to go out there because I can't have a government tell me what's. Like, it's always the what's next, right? If they tell me that I can't uh, stay, if I have to stay in my house and I can't go to work, then they're going to tell me I have to get the vaccine. And then next thing you know, they're going to implant something in me that's going to control me, whatever. Like that. That's how their minds go. Oh, the is- galaxy brain's going. I love it, Nick. This is great. So, but like what they don't understand is that, okay, we will stay in our houses because we care about the community of itself, but it'll just keep us in our houses that much longer because, again, we're not going to be able to go out. And that's going to just sink the economy because there's not enough of them to keep the economy going anyway uh, without us, the people who actually, you know, the 58, 60 percent of America who recognize the, the, how dangerous this can be and we, how we, we have to stay in. 
And I think that's the weird thing is that they've just been disconnected from the notion that we are all a part of the same thing. Yeah, and so there's a bunch of stuff. Again, like, there's never a silver bullet when explaining any of this stuff, right? It's never like this, 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 or this. This group is so inundated with a fake reality that has manipulated them for years and years and years that they're operating in in a totally different world. But they're also operating in a world where, okay, so like, for instance, um, I think we've all known this guy, the guy on like a college campus or out in town that is like 10 degrees out and he's wearing shorts and no sleeves. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and like, or you have the other guy who is like macho to the point where it's like obvious that he's overcompensating. It's people who are like, I'm not afraid of a virus. What are you talking about? Look, I've got a big giant truck and I've got guns why would i be afraid of a virus and it's like no you're projecting your insecurities on the world and trying to prove that you're not afraid and you're not weak which is you know masculinity and the problem of masculinity it's about the individual and the outside and this continual cycle between the two has just screwed up america so bad particularly because of again rugged individualism but also the way our political parties and especially the republican party have worked now that personality flaw that you just described is basically donald trump and so yep. I, I suppose that they won't ever be willing to admit that they have that kind of flaw that they would that they would be that way but they would gravitate with towards others who have that same flaw who can project everything that's wrong that they're doing onto other people, right? And so they recognize that like game meets game and they they you know they gravitate towards that. That that seems to me what gets him. And I've also said this before a lot, but like the notion that um you know Trump will continually ignore reality to put to paint a positive light on things is another one of those sort of I think flaws, you know, it could be a flaw, uh, that they also just sort of gravitate toward. That's that ma- that ma- magnetic quality I suppose that Trump can have over a very small I do want to ch- change the polling. Uh, the, the polling, by the way, was only 10 percent of Americans think they should we should relax social distancing, according to John Favreau. Um, and, and actually only 18 percent of uh, Republicans feel that way. So it, it's it's such a vast it's majority of the country. Yeah, it's not real. And that that's the thing. It's like if you haven't seen it yet, you should seek it out. I think I retweeted it a couple of days ago. The the Fox News graphic that shows, you know, that advertised all of these rallies. It looks like it's like a large swath of Americans. And then you have like like mainstream media companies that should know better showing these protests. And here's the thing. They're just like showing them like the heart of them, right? And they're like, look, there's a hundred people in this frame. Well, guess what? There's like three people on the outside of that frame, right? Yeah, right. But it feels huge. And, and real fast, and this is something that blew my mind when I was researching my book that people need to look up. Uh, do you remember, uh, it was like one of the crowning achievements of the Iraq War. It was the day that the Saddam Hussein statue was pulled down in the square. Yeah. Right. So the people who are listening, I want you to imagine that what it felt like when you saw that. And it it felt like there were so many Iraqis there, like cheering as it happened. There were a couple of dozen there. That was a psyop. That was a, a military propaganda effort to make it seem like they were greeted as liberators. And it has continued on in the mind as a mythic moment of american victory but it wasn't the people who were there were like there's nobody here and this is just weird and isolated but it looked like it was a massive thing that's what's happening here and this is the media continually trying to pretend like they're bipartisan you know unbiased or whatever they want to try and give everybody uh, and and that's trumpism too right 
Trumpism's not that many people. And it, it's just like they treat it like it's a major, major movement. And it's not. It's like maybe 28% of the country. Maybe. Right. And so when you, if you talk to somebody who's engaged in that kind of ideology, like you can just say to them with a straight face, you are just so part of a, an extreme fr- a fraction of the country. Like you just don't represent anything that's part of the country. And that's just like telling them, calling them a, t- a horrible word and just, you know, they'll just dismiss that and walk away. Uh, that's the thing is... It, the, the, the reality distortion also indicates to them that they are part of a huge movement and there's constantly reinforced to that by watching things like Fox News. And that's dangerous. When you feel like you're a part of a, of, of a big movement and everyone's behind you and the whole country feels that way, it's, it's hard to ever walk that back. Now, meanwhile, I feel like I'm amongst the vast majority of people in the country and how they feel, but I don't have any empowerment over that. All I do is bite my nails and have anxiety every day over this notion that Trump is going to win again because there's enough of these, you know, those Republicans who are sitting in the damn corner at their table, that round table at the wedding, who won't leave, even though the guy's giving the the worst drunk speech of all time that's <laughs> insulting every race and every, you know, uh, and gender and everything. Um, and there's enough of those and enough, you know, there's, there's the 60,000 people in the three random states that are going to decide the Electoral College, right? We're still in that situation where nothing historically, uh, the polls right now can indicate what's going to happen in, uh, in November. Well, how do we respond? Are we going to go out in public and march and coalesce and, you know, protest? No, we can't. Because we're practicing social distancing and, you know, self-quarantining. So it feels, and by the way, this is the, probably the smartest thing that Richard Nixon ever did. It's the idea of the silent majority. It says, you may not hear people saying what you're thinking all the time, but everybody is. It's a very small group of people. And actually, there was a really good article that Greg Sargent had in uh, the Washington Post today, which is that Trump, when he talks about these people and he talks about Democrats... He tells his supporters, oh, the only reason that Democrats get more votes than you and have power or whatever is because they cheat and they lie and they steal. It's not a real election. We are technically the majority. And these people are the liars. And so it's, it's again, it's more fabrication. It's more astroturfing. It's more building up a fake movement to seem larger than it is. And so what you have to realize is that America is inundated and poisoned with these fabricated realities. It's it's a really sad state of affairs, but it's, it's, it's right. what's happening. And, and meanwhile, we got Joe Biden to save us from all of this. Yeah, and we have to rely on them. And if I'm pissed off about it, you're pissed off about it, what do we do? We pick up our phone and we tweet about it. We just send it out in the void and then it doesn't do anything, right? Mm -hmm. It's a machine that makes us feel like we're doing something. It makes us feel like, oh, I get this many retweets or this many likes or shares on Facebook. And it makes you feel like you're actually doing something. But all you're actually doing is powering a machine with your outrage and your anger. And these people are showing up with AK-47s, right, over here, or AR-15s. And they're showing up on capitals, and there's like a 100 of them, but they're treated like thousands. Yeah, and and what have we come to that, you know, uh, back in the day, these people would not even dare... talk about Russia or have any association, but yeah, when they have an AK-47, which is a Russian-made rifle, and they're proud to have those things, too, that that's crazy, crazy talk. This, that whole, the whole notion of Russia being our enemy has so become corrupted where, like, you'll see those, those people wearing shirts that say, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat, 
right? Like, wh- how have we gotten to that point? Because especially because those specific people of all the people in the country should be the ones who are completely railing against what Russia did and how they were involved in the election and, and that, how, how chummy Trump is with Putin. You know, Trump has had four talk calls with Putin that are basically hidden from us. We don't even know what they talked about on all these different calls. I'm so glad you brought that up because it comes full circle. It's all part of the same thing. The reason why Republicans and I don't even want to call them conservatives anymore. The reason why Republicans and Trumpists are so tight knit on Russia is because they're all possessed of white supremacist conspiracy notions. The idea is that there is a globalist conspiracy of um, shadowy. um, What kind of people? Jews. Oh, yeah, the Jews. That uh, They are orchestrating a global conspiracy that is going against white people to take their power away. That is the, the defining ideology of Russia right now under Vladimir Putin. And that is also the defining ideology of Trumpist America. They are looking at the exact same thing. And it is a new world order, deep state, globalist, whatever you want to call it. Again, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that unites them. And it makes them feel like they have to be uh, allies in this thing, which by the way, um, you know, we're nearing the end of the podcast. So I, I just want to point this out there. That's also what united the Axis powers. But that's just neither here nor there, Nick. I just want to point out that conspiracy theories and paranoia and the perceived loss of power, particularly in the face of the loss of power in a white supremacist world, leads to strange bedfellows and it leads to bad things and manipulation. I can't agree more. And, you know, it just quickly reminded me of the thread that we saw on Twitter from, uh, I think it was uh, Tim Mack. You share with me about uh, the history of the pandemic, the 1918 Spanish flu, which uh, when they relaxed social distancing a little too early in San Francisco, it came roaring back. And uh, you had a whole anti-mask committee uh, that was, uh, again, uh, propaganda that got people just like we are today. There's nothing is changed. Uh, We haven't learned from the history of that either. Uh, You throw in the fact that the World War, uh, World War I ended as well, and everyone got on the streets to celebrate that. And it just ended up, uh, you know, right back where we are, and, and which is death and sickness. And by the way, even if you recover, they're talking about long-term damage to major organs here that you might not ever recover from after that. So uh, that that's the thing that doesn't seem worth it, you know, no matter what, however you slice this. And yet there they are, angry in the streets uh, and, and being interviewed on Fox. You know, just to show that this is um, an unbiased podcast, let's just bring up real fast one of the worst presidents and human beings in human history, which is Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, uh, who created a cult of personality around him and engineered a lot of the propaganda that we're now seeing weaponized. And in World War One, he was treated as the savior of the world because it was American propaganda, which got us to where we are now. And I just want to point out that at these rallies, people are flying Trump flags of him dressed up like Rambo with like big giant muscles holding weapons and 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 like slathered up like Putin. It's this cult of personality that is all based on propaganda and social engineering and manipulation and that's how you get here is when a country gets taken over by cult of personality and propaganda manipulation which is exactly what we're watching happening right now. Jared, we need our own propaganda for this podcast. Well, I think we can work on that. Uh, In the meantime, maybe we can ask our guest Dan Dresner about that. Uh, We're about to welcome him on to talk about his book, Toddler in Chief, which talks about the infantilization of Donald Trump and the the horror of that. So, uh, yeah, everybody hang out for a second. And uh, here's Dan Dresner. 
Hey everyone, we are incredibly lucky to have a special guest with us today, uh, Dan Dresner, who is a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, a regular contributor to the Washington Post. Uh, Dan is the author of the new book, The Toddler in Chief, What Donald Trump Teaches Us About the Modern Presidency. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's, a, it's a funny title. It makes me laugh every time I see it. And then I remember uh, in sheer terror that this man is in charge of our country. Uh, Dan, can you talk? That's exactly the tightrope I was walking writing the book, by the way. A, a tightrope over a wilderness of razors. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about the impetus for this thing and maybe, I, I don't know, trying to make sense of one of the most uh, absolutely ridiculous, dangerous, and frightening things uh, that I can ever imagine and, and, and how you sort of uh, came to terms with this project? This started uh, in late April of 2017 uh, as a Twitter thread, and it was a response to and and you got to remember the mindset of people in early 2017. And this is important because I'm not trying to 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 diss people when I say this, but I think particularly within the mainstream media, there was this aching desire to normalize Trump. In other words, to to look at Donald Trump and think, okay. It was an awful campaign. Okay, it was a rocky transition. But you know what? He's going to grow into the presidency. He's going to realize the awesome powers of the office he's occupying. There are adults in the room that will will guide him, you know, as an inexperienced person to actually, you know, going into this. And, you know, we're all going to be OK. And, and we saw this in the mainstream media reaction, for example, to Trump's first joint address to Congress. We saw it in the reaction to the missile strikes he launched on Syria. You had people like Fareed Zakaria saying this was the day Trump became president or Van Jones saying this was the day Trump, you know, grew into the presidency. And I got that. But on the other hand, you know, you would see those statements and then you would also see a passel of news stories in which Trump's own staffers were describing him anonymously the way you would describe a petulant two year old. And so. Um, on April 25th, I think there was a story by Robert Costa and Ashley Parker, my colleagues at The Post, where they talked about Trump, you know, watching a lot of television. And a staffer said something to the effect of, you know, once he goes into the East Wing, there's no controlling him. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I remember babysitters saying this to me about my own children. I mean, not about the East Wing, but like, you know, we, we you know, once he goes into his room, we, we couldn't do anything. And, and so I just tweeted something. I said, you know, I'll believe that Trump grows into the presidency when his staff stops talking about him like a toddler. And I didn't think it was going to be anything. I just sort of, you know, it was, a, it was Twitter. It was snarky. And then about a day or two later, I saw a Politico story that had the exact same kind of feel to it. And again, it's important to stress the people describing him like a toddler in my book and in this thread are not Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or you know, uh, Adam Serwer or David Brooks or any of those people. They are people who have a political interest in the success of Donald Trump, who nonetheless describe him the way you would describe a two-year-old. And so I started keeping this thread. Um, and, you know, it just struck me the more I did it, the more I realized the theme stuck. I think, I think the moment I really knew I was going to probably keep at it for a while was, if you remember, in May of 2017, there was a Time magazine story um, about Trump's life in the White House, in which it was described what happens, like, you know, he, he has dinner with Pence and so on and so forth. And, and this detail just got me where, like, when the dessert course is served, everyone <laughs> gets one scoop of ice cream, except Trump, who gets two scoops of ice cream and chocolate sauce. And I'm like, such that's a good most, boy. That, that's the most toddler thing ever. And so that, you know, that was when I realized I, at some point I might try to turn this into a book.
Well, Dan, do you remember when you first started, like how many followers you had on Twitter at that time versus what you have now? Oh, God. Uh, I want to say I had about 60,000 maybe, I think. Maybe 70. I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, and so now you're at like, uh, what, 170, something like that? Uh, 137. 137, excuse me. So, yeah, yeah. so this, it's, yeah, it's safe to say this, this took off and, and it sort of gave you a platform that people really wanted to continue to hear more of, I suppose. Yes. And, and furthermore, the other nice thing about it is that as a thread as a thread developed, you know, mostly this was just me being on Twitter or reading the news and seeing these kinds of, of you know, quotes and, and adding them as, as the thread caught on. I then started getting help uh, from others who would say, you know, Dan, this is a you know, toddler in chief thread edition here. Every once in a while, I've had a reporter ping me as well, in which they write something where it's like, oh, you're going to like this. Not not like like, it would, like they would DM me or something. You know, I, I, I think I, I keep hearing this and it's like um, I was telling somebody a, a couple of months ago that like comedy comes from the the release of horror. <laughs> you know, the idea that like something is so out of the ordinary and so surreal that it makes you uncomfortable. And so you have to like come to terms with it somehow. I, you know, we're, we're talking about the most powerful man uh, theoretically in the world. Uh, who is is the man in charge of nuclear codes and is now in charge of a, a of a generational pandemic, and I, I I keep trying personally and and I keep trying to wrestle around with the people that you're talking about. We're talking about like reporters and we're talking about pundits and we're talking about seasoned veterans, right, who have served in presidential administrations, who have constantly looked at this man who is a force of of chaos and grift and and the most immature probably occupant of the presidency we've ever had. And they continually do this thing. Like you're saying, it's almost like laying the bumpers out at the, at the bowling alley. And they're like, oh, don't worry. There are going to be those people in the room. Somebody's going to be able to handle him. Today's the day he, become, he became president. What do you think is behind that? Where does that rationale come from? Where does that delusional sort of uh, uh, navigation originate? I, I think it comes from a couple places. The first, and, and you know, Another book I wrote was once was Theories of International Politics and Zombies, which is a, a textbook for international relations. But one of the things I learned writing about that is that one of the utilities of genre is that, you know, genre fiction allows us to deal or to cope with the horror of actual reality, but in a way that we're not just constantly going, oh, my God, you know, you know constantly. In other words, it, it's a way and it's a psychological way in which we can process things that are bad, but not incapacitate ourselves so much. Um, and the reason I say that is that by talking about him like a toddler, there is an element of humor to this because there is an element of humor to this presidency. It, it, it's, you know, it's a clowning of, uh, in many ways. And I don't mean to deny the tragedy of it, but I think in some ways part of the reason I wrote this was it, it's, it's a way in which we can cope with that tragedy by also realizing there's humor in it. Um, and, and so it's a way of processing the, the bad stuff. I think the other deeper reason, though, that that people believe this is because to be fair prior to Trump this was a narrative that made some sense you know it's not like Trump right. is the first inexperienced president to come into office a lot of presidents you know most presidents i mean at least all the post cold war presidents were elected without a great deal of federal government experience um you know clinton had been a governor for a long time but it never you know dealt with uh, anything international george w bush you know also a governor barack obama had been only a one term senator Trump, we don't need to get into. And so prior to Trump, most of these people did actually have adults in the room that would tell them, do this, don't do that. 
you know, or this is a bad idea and so on and so forth. Now, there's a danger sometimes that presidents rely too much on these people. Um, you know, that maybe they wind up making the wrong decisions. You can argue that's certainly the case with George W. Bush in Iraq, for example. But that said, you know, not even Bush's Iraq advisors were, would probably have given him catastrophic advice like, you know, uh, relax about the, the pandemic. It's not that big of a deal. Or, you know, encourage your supporters to rally uh, at state capitals as a way of, of, of changing things. Um, and, and the other thing that's happened is that for the longest time, and, and this is the deeper part of the, the book that I'm, I'm telling, is that essentially this is a bigger problem we have now than we would have had 50 years ago because the checks and balances on the presidency have eroded very badly since the sort of post-Watergate days. That Congress has become incapacitated in no small part due to polarization. The judicial branch has shown undue deference um, to the executive. Uh, presidents have learned to run roughshod over the bureaucracy over sort of informal norms uh, and, and rules and procedures. And so all of this was done in no small part because the rest of Washington was so incapacitated, the president was given more and more power because the president was thought to be the last adult in the room. And then we elected Donald Trump. Well, my question, I think, is, is do you, I don't know if you can have a favorite example of how he's been described as a toddler, because that seems, well, maybe, I think comedy is tragedy plus time, right? So maybe eventually yeah, we'll find exactly. it funny. But do, is there any one in particular that gives us a little taste of, uh, not to put you on the spot, uh, that jumps out in your mind that you feel like uh, is something that was really extra special, memorable for you, that encapsulates the, that, that description of him? I think there there's a couple. I mean, the first is in terms of the quotes, you know, a lot of the, the accusations are, well, all these, you know, staffers who say, you know, Trump is a toddler are anonymous. There's on the record stuff of people saying this. And my favorite are the ones where, like, it's a guy who's been Trump's, you know, full throat supporter. My favorite quote, I think, is from Lindsey Graham, actually, where Lindsey Graham at one point in early 2019 said the president's been he can be a handful. That's just the way he is, you know, and. <laughs> What are you going to do with that? That's exactly the way you would describe a rambunctious toddler. I'm sorry. Um, and then the other, the, the time story I liked, but I do think my favorite story that, that seems toddler-like was his desire to buy Greenland. Um, yeah. You know, and, and by the way, that is another reason why I wrote this, because a lot of the stuff in this book, it's mostly, again, I was relying on the, you know, on, on mainstream media reporting. I wasn't really, you know, going out of my way to look for this stuff. But the problem with Trump or, or living under Trump is that we get inundated with wave after wave of constant shocks. We forget stories like, oh, yeah, he thought buying Greenland would work or he asked about nuking a hurricane. You know, these kinds of stories where we just sort of forget that 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 he actually tried this stuff. And I also like that because, let's face it, it's it, in the end, it was hopefully harmless. I mean, I don't think he helped U.S. relations with Denmark. He can't. The, the, my favorite part was where he canceled the state visit or the, the visit to Denmark because the prime minister wouldn't sell him. I mean, it's like the ultimate toddler move of I think I'll do this crazy idea. And then when the crazy idea doesn't work, you pout. I, oh man, I had almost forgotten about the, the nuking of a hurricane. That was a thing. That was a thing he, he said. Yeah story by uh, Jonathan Swan and Oxtios where he basically asked, well, you know, it, hurricane season's coming in. Why can't we just nuke the hurricanes? Can we, can, would that be a way of destroying the hurricanes? You know, and, and by the way, this weirdly also helps to explain at least somewhat, I think, Trump's sort of level of support from his base. Because if you think about it, that is a classic question from someone who knows nothing 
about policy or policymaking. And to be fair, that's true of a lot of Americans. Most Americans are rationally ignorant about politics because sure. Americans are busy people. They got lives to lead. They, they, you know, they don't necessarily automatically pay attention to national politics. So it's the kind of question that one of his supporters would ask as well. Yeah, and 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 you know that the idea that that Americans sort of rely on the mythology of a president, right? Like this whole idea. And 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 something I've been thinking about. I, I've been looking through your work over the past few days. And while I was doing research on my book, um, I, I I was born in 1981, so like I was a child as as Ronald Reagan was president. And the Ronald Reagan that has been in my memory has been like the the mythologized Reagan, right? That you know the the Cold Warrior and and all this stuff, and. The more research that I do on it, the more that Reagan's presidency sort of um, kind of weirdly resembled a lot of Donald Trump's presidency. There were always adults in the room who were always, you know, doing things like making cartoons for him. And, you know, they would have jelly bean breaks. I mean, it, it's not, it's sort of insane when you start talking about it. But somebody who's been looking at all this and sort of like getting in people's heads as they're, they're talking about Trump as a toddler... Do you think there's a future where possibly this type of stuff could be mythologized and washed over and sort of turned into like a quirky presidency? Or do you think that it's going to eventually shine through? How, how do you see this playing out? Um, so I think, honestly, and this is how I, I close the book, a lot of this depends on whether he gets reelected. Um, you know, if, if he gets reelected, then at a minimum, you have to describe Trump as a political success which is he ran in 2016 and, you know, all the, the pundits didn't think he was going to win and he won against all odds. He didn't win the popular vote, but he does he does surprise people. If he gets reelected in the wake of the most severe economic contraction in a century and the most significant pandemic we faced in a century um, and he gets reelected with this, then, yeah, there there is going to be there will be narratives constructed of this guy was a political genius. He totally upended the game and was able to be elected twice. Now, that said, it's worth remembering that, you know, George W. Bush was elected twice. We've had other failed, pre you know, Richard Nixon was elected twice. We've had other failed presidents that won two elections. Um, but it becomes easier for, you know, uh, Trump supporters to spin a narrative of him as, you know, a successful president. And it'll be one of those things that'll be debated going, you know, in the future. Um, I'm just kind of curious if, uh, it, do you think that there's someone out there like taking notes, maybe even from what your book is about and realizing what not to do, but to also carry out the same exact kind of, uh, you know, uh, policies that Trump is doing, who could be wildly successful and never have any of the issues that Trump is having and win, you know, ridiculous uh, by ridiculous margins? The nightmare scenario is what we're asking about here, Dan. That's something that terrifies me of, um, you know, does a Tom Cotton or a Josh Hawley, uh, you know, look at this and think, OK, here's what worked. Here's what doesn't. Um, that is possible. But I will say this. And it, it's the one encouraging thing. And it, it does suggest, by the way, there's something unique about Trump, which is everyone who has tried the sort of Trump formula that is not Trump has failed. Um, you know, and, and this this is true of his cabinet supporters or you know, cabinet officials or people who run for elected office. You know, think Matt Bevin in Kentucky, for example, I think is a good example. Um, or Thomas Modley, who was this uh, acting secretary of the Navy who just got fired or had to quit. Um, there, it might be that it, you would have to have some degree of Trumpian charisma, for lack of a better way of putting it. And whatever you think about Trump, he had spent decades building a brand 
such that like I, I think part of it also, to be honest, is that, you know, as someone who grew up, I'm older than you, but like both of us grew up with Donald Trump sort of in the pop culture background. He was always, you know, this guy who we knew was a self-promoter and kind of thought maybe was a little bit buffoonish, but like harmless in, in some way. Um, and I don't think that's how people would look at people like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley. He does. Th th those people don't give off the same vibe. And so um, I, I'm cautiously optimistic that no one will be able to do this. But, you know, the other thing that matters are events. If, let's say, Trump loses in 2020, but his success let's, and let's say President Biden is simply overmatched or overwhelmed, you know, then we'll see come 2024. Well, uh, you know, in a current events podcast, we will take cautiously optimistic as a way to close out anything that we possibly can. Uh, Dan Dresner, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Dresner, um, and I write uh, four times a week for The Washington Post. Fantastic. And again, we were talking with Dan Dresner, the to uh, author of The Toddler in Chief, What Donald Trump Teaches Us About the Modern Presidency. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. So that was Daniel Dresner, uh, a fantastic follow on Twitter. Again, he's got over 1,300 tweets uh, citing uh, people of the administration describing him like a toddler. Uh, and he's simply not never grown into that position of uh, elder statesman like he claimed he would. Yeah, and never will. And I, I, I think it's we should have an episode later on about how all these people who treat him like a toddler or think he's going to become a president have this absolutely misguided trust in the office. It's almost like Jean Baudrillard would say something about the symbol of the presidency and the flag and the seal of the presidency and the White House and how it's sort of lost all meaning and it's, you know, been tainted and tarnished. But that's neither here nor there. Right. I, I, I have hope that eventually in the, in, the, in the distant future, they'll look back on this time as a stain of our, of our history of our democracy, and uh, we will have overcome it and figured out ways to, uh, to, to fix the, all these different problems. Which reminds me, Jared, Jared, we still need to have that podcast where we list all of our solutions for how to avoid this happening in the future. Yeah, we need to have a solutions podcast, and I think that is the closest thing that we are going to find to hope in all of this. Uh, it is an extremely frustrating, aggravating time, uh, but we thank you for coming uh, and listening and the support. Uh, this podcast is growing by leaps and bounds. We are so excited about that, and, and we have had incredible feedback and just a lot of support from you, and we just want to let you know we appreciate it. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, rate, share, retweet send up a smoke signal, whatever it is you do. Tell people about this podcast and let them know we're doing something a little bit different and, uh, and that you enjoy it. So thank you so much uh, for my co-host, Nick Hausman, who you can find at Can You Hear Me SMH. I am at JY Sexton. Until next time, stay safe and uh, yeah, keep washing those hands.